0: This is The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. Mm -hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are warned that the following episode may contain the names and voices of people who are deceased. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the many lands across Australia and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. We recognise our enduring connection to the lands and waterways of this country and thank them for protecting and maintaining this country for us and future generations. In this series, our host, Cameron Edwards, interviews deadly physios from around Australia. And by deadly, we mean something that is awesome or fantastic. So join us as we have a yarn and enjoy some deadly stories.
1: Hello and welcome to The Deadly Physios. My name is Claire Pickering and I am your host today because it is my absolute honour to interview our regular host, Cameron Edwards. Cam, welcome to The Deadly Physios.
2: Well, Claire, thank you for welcoming me because I uh, do feel a certain level of discomfort being in the interviewee chair. But I've looked forward to this and also for having your voice for the audience to hear the mastermind behind it all, really, I think. And so I'm honoured to be interviewed by you, really.
1: Well, I've certainly got some very big shoes to fill with this interview. But before we dive in, as you know, Cam, the tradition of the deadly physios is we give an acknowledgement to country and I would like to acknowledge the country that I'm on and where I'm speaking from today. From the Yulukit Wielang clan of the boomerang people, I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging and thank them for their wisdom and continuing care of this land. And where are you speaking from today, Cam?
2: Well, as per usual, I'm on Dureg land. And I, I think that's special because, uh, as we'll find out a little bit later, uh, in my story, this is the land that I've grown up on as well and am familiar with. And so I want to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land, the Darug people, and specifically the area where I am, um, the borough Mudagool Mob. I am privileged to be speaking from this place, a place that means a lot to me.
1: So before we dive into your story, Cam, if there are listeners who are wondering what country they're on, how do they find out?
2: The simplest of ways is pointing you to the best of search engines or there are often in at least government institutions, there tends to be a a large map showing the rough divides between mobs. And if you know where you are on a map, sometimes it might not say the anglicized name of a certain suburb or whatnot, you can tend to identify what region you lie between. But a simple Google search of your suburb with something along the lines of Aboriginal mob at the end of it will yield a good result for you.
1: It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Such a simple thing, and yet it holds so much power to know what country we're on. You actually mentioned a word then that not all of our listeners would be familiar with. Could you explain what the word mob means?
2: So a mob is a word that would be... Most akin to tribe, I think you would have heard or our audience would have heard the word tribe being used to identify or differentiate between local groups in Indigenous nations that have Indigenous people. You know, it may be the Inuit tribe in Canada or uh, you might have the Comanches or things like that, which you might attach the word tribe to at the end. But here in Australia, we use the word mob.
1: And speaking of the word mob, can you tell us a little bit more about your story, Cam, and how you ended up working as a physio?
2: What an interesting story. I feel like it took a lifetime to get here, even though I'm still quite young. Well, so my grandmother tells me, anyways. I grew up in Blacktown, Zurich mobland, and so my parents became pastors. My dad felt a calling to preach in a Christian church, and so began one in Blacktown two months before I was born. Previously, they had lived in a suburb called Marylands, still in the western suburbs of Sydney. And uh, two months later, I was born. So I grew up in Blacktown, 18 years of my life I spent in Blacktown, same school, pretty much the same footy team. Everything was very much the same same. I didn't have much change in my life at that time. HSE came around and I was in two minds about what I should do. I had been on a, a mission trip with my school in year 11 and I went to some very underprivileged areas in Southeast Asia and some of the stories there particularly touched me regarding the health inequalities or disparities that I had seen. And before that, I had thought about getting into teaching. My older brother and my older sister were both teachers at the time. And so I wanted to go down that route. I really value the idea of uh, passing on knowledge or inspiring a new generation to do amazing things. Somewhat like the Dead Poets Society, I I was very much arts orientated. And uh, then it hit me that I really wanted to help people in a health capacity. And I thought about how I could do this. I played junior rugby league at a good level. I won't say I was the best or anything like that, but I injured myself while playing a game for Parramatta Eels Juniors. And I received some physiotherapy services and was really inspired by that. So, as I was putting in my preferences for university, I put in physiotherapy along with teaching. And because I didn't get the ATAR required to get straight into physiotherapy, and also I was a little bit more arts orientated, I was quite unsure of as to whether or not I would actually, um, number one, be able to be accepted into the program and number two, be able to actually complete the program as I didn't have that science foundation And uh, one of the women from the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander support services on campus at the University of Sydney called me up, and it was an infamous phone call. She and I reminisce about it every time we see each other, and we also tell it as a story of hope for others. It was while I was on the toilet. Why I answered the phone, I don't know, but it definitely changed the course of my life, so to speak. And uh, so we had a great chat and me putting on a voice so that she wouldn't hear the echoing in the bathroom. <laughs> and um, we had a great chat. And she she believed in me without having seen me, but she instilled that belief. Uh, it became self-belief and uh, I put it there and I was accepted into the program. And throughout my university degree, this lady assisted me and encouraged me through some some darker and harder times. And so I wanted to give a shout out to her. Her name is Simone Cherie Holt. And if anyone's gone through the University of Sydney as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in the last, I'm going to say 10 years, they would have the same sentiment towards her as I do. There was one time my car broke down on the morning of an exam and she came, picked me up and drove me there. And. And she reminded me the other day, she was like, but didn't you get an HD? And I said, oh yeah, but it's because of you. You got me there. You got me to that exam. And so that's where the passion really, really came from. When I began university, my first one week placement, I observed a physio in action and I said, I love this. I want to do this. And throughout all the hardships that I went through during university, I remained true to that. And that involves Things like, you know, my parents are leaving Australia. They now live in China and uh, moving out at the age of 18 and different things like that. My love for physiotherapy is undeniable. I just became so passionately enraptured with the way that I would be able to use my skills to help others.
1: I love this story, Cam. I think we might have a new podcast series called Toilet Stories. Maybe you could be the host of that as well. And for those listening who don't know what HD means, it's high distinction. So you never cease to amaze me, Cam. Your talents are far-reaching, so congratulations on that. You briefly mentioned your family. Could you talk a little bit more about them?
2: Yeah, so um, both of my parents were born in Australia. Now my Aboriginal heritage comes from my mother's side, from the Gamilaroi mob up around Moree, Wimala, so a little bit north of Moree, closer to the border between Queensland and New South Wales. And it's about, I drove there not so long ago, actually. I think it's about a, a six-hour trip from Grafton inland. And so uh, that was a very special trip for me, but also gives a little bit of context to the location of Moree or, or Weemalaya if other people haven't heard of it. So yes, my family, very inspirational to everything that I do, very integral to the decisions that I've made in life. They are the people that I love the most in the world. So I have obviously my mum and dad, and then I have three siblings. And we're all incredibly close uh, and love each other dearly. Although geographically these days, there is a little bit of a barrier to being together. As I said, for 18 years, there was this very stable, we know what to expect in terms of the family as well as you know, those other things I've mentioned. And then when mum and dad uh, left to go to China, you know, we were somewhat scattered. My little sister went with them and actually completed a HSC abroad. And uh, all of that, all of that, there was a little bit of a a, uh, maturing and uh, a degree of growth that came out of that that I think was a little bit different to other people that were that were my age at the time you know when I was having to do the shopping and washing for myself and all of those things but what i admire the most in my family is the integrity that they have and that uh whether or not you believe in god or not they obeyed the voice that told them to go and that above all i think has been something that's inspiring for other people who yeah may not be christians or may not believe what we believe, but can see that they have this deep sense of belonging, this deep sense of purpose. And I think that's shared amongst the family and draws us together as well. In terms of my mum's heritage, because I know contextually what this podcast is about, in terms of my mum's heritage, I think there's this word that's often used and people understand it as, you know, the stolen generation. And You know, I'm finding out more and more that people don't really understand how close in our history that was when I have conversations about it. But there's also a more subtle term. I don't know if I've coined it or if other people have said it. I don't know where I picked it up, but it's almost like this silent generation. And it's what I would associate to the people who would be disadvantaged if they identified as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. And there's a lady I had spoken to where... Um, her mother was outside the room and her auntie was inside the room in terms of education because one had Aboriginal features and the other one didn't. And so during a very racist history with many institutions, whether or not it be health, education, et cetera, you know, disadvantaging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, it wasn't popular, so to speak, to identify and so my mother actually only found out when she was roughly roughly 21 years old. She had olive skin, traditional Aboriginal features. However, grew up in a very um, ethnic area, and so thought oh, I must be Lebanese, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't until she was 21 that she kind of did a little bit more digging. And it's an interesting thing because you know all she could remember was Grandad was black as night. Why? Why was that? And, but it, you know, might have just tickled her tickled her mind, but it wasn't necessarily something that she had thought about much because he passed away quite young, as is the trajectory of Aboriginal life expectancy, unfortunately. And so did my grandmother on that side. So that's a little bit more of that heritage up the Aboriginal song line.
1: You know, Cam, your story highlights a theme that seems to be consistent throughout this podcast series and that is about identity and i'm curious to know whether you were aware of your identity growing up did your mother teach you about your aboriginality when you were a child and when you were growing up
2: i wouldn't say it was from the beginning in the sense of you know from when i was born because i think i think what you've got to realize is that i don't simply have aboriginality as my sole heritage i don't have two aboriginal parents and so Although I draw upon these lines and I do identify, it's not my sole heritage. And as I said, my grandmother um, on that side was the first one to pass away out of all of my grandparents. So I had, you know, Anglo Saxon heritage lines that were more accessible, you know, in one sense. My grandfather and grandmother on the other side outlived both my grandparents on my mum's side. And so I think from a young age, I was probably cognizant of it when i was about 10 or so and i'm going to say it's 10 uh because that's when i began to see it play out in my brother and sister's life a little bit more and also mum you know we might go to you know the aboriginal dental clinic instead and i was like oh you know i don't know when you're that young sometimes you're not so aware about the world and it's coming up later uh, because I know the questions roughly that are that will be asked in these episodes. I don't want to precursor it too much, but there is a special word to me that symbolises this kind of awakening of the journey. I, I would put it that way, and uh, I probably became more involved when I reached university because you, with these support groups that I mentioned before, or these tutoring groups, or the Aboriginal liaison officers, et cetera, there's a way to unify yourself with Aboriginal people. Whereas in community, if you've come from, you know, I grew up on Darug land, but I'm not Darug in one sense. So engaging with community sometimes can be a little bit more sensitive, but then you've got all of these Aboriginal students all doing the same course or all at the same university. And there's just a rich subculture there that I became very involved with as well, and kind of led to, again, my involvement post-graduation in things like the APA. Uh, but before that, I think it was much more just around the household, you know, we would go to Blacktown Festival and see um, see different aspects of the dairy culture displayed. Mum taught us that, you know, we had Aboriginal heritage. We knew where it came from, we knew who our ancestors were, but yeah, I think It's hard to explain unless you've come from what people would coin as a mixed family, I think, where two cultures are kind of coming together. I think that's the best way to describe it.
1: You just said two really powerful statements then, Cam. Awakening of the journey and coming together. So that leads to a really important discussion, which is actually the foundation of this podcast series, and that is around closing the gap and reconciliation so can you explain what that means to you and why it matters?
2: It matters deeply to me. I've given some talks and have really been blessed with a platform to speak at you know the University of Melbourne um, at the APAs conference and also to my local workplaces that I've worked at recently about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, and also the implications for physiotherapy in those spaces. And it deeply troubles me whenever I see the statistics. And I don't know about anyone else, but at university, when you get the evidence-based practice lectures, or where it's just numbers and numbers and numbers, it can become quite draining to just see numbers, numbers, numbers. I don't know, but I wasn't that type of person to enjoy that type of learning. But when I just see numbers, 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 when we look at um, health disparity, where we look at educational attainment, where we look at child mortality, where we look at life expectancy, and you just see numbers, for me, I have to take a step back and really, really be drawn to what those numbers mean. And when I am drawn to that, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Just the incredible disparity that's there. So reconciliation to me. It involves two parties. It involves, it always has to. It's not a one-way street. It's a conversation that has to happen. It's a commitment. And there has to be some sort of contribution from each side to be reconciled. Because for me, the, the picture that I get to be reconciled means that there is no more debt that is owing or there is no more baggage between two parties. It's kind of like a forgiveness term to me. And so when you're reconciled, You're forgiven. There's no more harbouring of ill will. There's no more difference between the two. So when I think of reconciliation, I have to look at history. Like I said, I was very arts-minded and I look at history and it makes me tearful. The amount of massacres. I encourage people to look up a massacre map of Australia. They're available and you can just see the pure atrocities that have happened, look up your local mob, and I guarantee you that there's been one massacre, or, or, you know, that there are stories of death, just death is the word. And that is the past that we're trying to reconcile. When I spoke of the Dharag mob, uh, I may have en- mentioned this in another uh, podcast opening in the acknowledgement of country, but around 70% of the Dharag mob were wiped out by smallpox, which was introduced. That is something to be reconciled. That is something that needs healing when that much of your culture is eliminated. So that's what reconciliation means to me in terms of the concept. How then do you do something like contribute to that reconciliation? And that's where I find the position of close the gap. Close the gap on a governmental level means something, on a personal level means something. But I guess a governmental level, you have several standards in which the government has ordained that they would contribute to reducing the gap in life expectancy, educational attainment, child mortality, health disparities, housing, incarceration rates. There's a couple of different focus areas. And the government has said, well, we're going to to reduce that gap that exists. And I, again, encourage everyone to look at the gaps be confronted with the stats uh, and recognize that they represent real people but closing the gap to me personally is what can i do what can i do to be someone who stands in the middle because i think sometimes gaps exist because people aren't willing to stand in the middle or are scared to stand in the middle so for me personally i find you know maybe it's because of my mixed heritage maybe it's because of Uh, my passion for health or passion for helping people. But I want to stand in the gap and almost have a rope attached to each side and draw them together to make that reconciliation. And I know that that's quite a simplistic view because there's so much complexity to why the gap exists or how it might be fixed. But on a personal level, that's the picture that I take in my approach to closing the gap. You know,
1: Cam... I love that visual that you've just given about standing in the gap. It also reminds me of our very first podcast where you interviewed Scott Willis, where he talks about holding hands and moving forward. And I feel it's a very similar thing. This is something that we need to do together, particularly for non-Indigenous people. It's not something you need to do alone. This is a team effort. This is a community effort. And so to provide even more guidance, how can non-Indigenous people help in closing the gap? What can they do? What can they do practically to close the gap?
2: I think for me, a big thing is to be the bridge, so to speak. And sometimes that means lying down on the road. I, I remember this little story about, you know, some princess or queen, or maybe it was just in this gentleman's book where it says, you know, lay your coat down in the puddle for the lady or some chivalrous type deed, but it's kind of that picture that I get, you know, in terms of bridging the gap, something has to be laid down. And sometimes that means a bit of your volunteer time. Sometimes that might mean a bit of money for a donation. Sometimes that might mean, or I would say most of the time it means time. Time lost in the past can be reconciled with the time that you give now. And so I think for non-Indigenous people, finding out who your local mob is or a mob that you would feel passionate about. Maybe it's the one on whose traditional lands you grew up on rather than the one you currently work on or whatnot. Finding out who they are and what they feel they need. Sometimes, you know, they might not want your help and that's fair given past atrocities and mistrust, etc. But more than often, there's ways that you can get involved and it starts with the conversation. It starts with the mediation and the bridge crossing. And another way that I would explain it is that if there has been offense caused, then it is the role of the offender to go back and reconcile, you know, because you've caused that mistrust, you've caused that pain or whatever it might be. And so I do feel like sometimes it can be cast onto Indigenous people. You fix your problems. And to a certain extent, I am a a strong believer in individual responsibility. But in this context, there does have to be that two-way street because we're using terms such as reconciliation. And so to understand a historical context, come at it with grace. Come at it with humility. You might not know everything. I don't either. And so come at it and keep chipping away. Keep chipping away with love. Keep chipping away with honest ears to listen and hands to help. That's the best broad advice that I can give without going into you know, specifics of things that you might be able to do.
1: Uh, But Cam, what do you say to those people who say, I didn't commit those atrocities. I wasn't there. I didn't know.
2: I I think it's an interesting one because one of the things that fills me with the most indignation is when I get blamed for something that I didn't do. I don't know. It's always triggered me since I was little. I've always, you know, but dad, I didn't do that. It was my little sister or... You know, getting upset, and I think there's certainly some merit to that in one sense. But you also didn't build the road that you drive on. You also didn't pay for a lot of what you have. There were people before you that did that. And so we have them to thank, and in some sense, we have them to curse. (laughs) There are parts of our life that we inherit that are good, and there are other things that we inherit which aren't so good. And I think we need to be, again, humble to realize that, no, we didn't cause it. And no, maybe you don't need to pay. Maybe you don't need to ethically or logically when it comes down to it. No, you are not. You don't harbor any personal responsibility for the atrocities which are done. Maybe you don't harbor any personal racism within you. And you are this you know, good, righteous human being that's quite productive in society. But rather than, you know, what is the logical thing to do, what is the right thing to do? For me, I grew up in a family where my parents were together, and that's privilege enough. And I grew up, you know, I didn't always have everything I could have wanted. But one thing I did learn was on the streets of Blacktown to love people who are less fortunate and to serve. And so for people who say that, I just say, well, you know, it's up to you. It's it's your personal decision on how you'll contribute to these statistics, onto these broken lives. Have you ever seen what communities, what mobs are going through, what hardships are going through? And it's not all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, but I mean, any part of our society that's the weak link, we're no better than them. Well, you learn that in footy, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so when we have all these health disparities for our First Nations, what do we present to the world? That we're some rich and burgeoning culture when we can't even...
1: We're the lucky country.
2: Yeah, are we? We are. But what are we doing with our luck? What are we doing? Is it selfish luck? Yeah, we are the lucky country, but it's what we do with our luck. And I think some of the attributes we've lost, things like service and servitude and selflessness, and I think we could do with a, a bit of that rather than the, oh, I didn't do that. And I, I know I'm guilty. I, I've already prefaced this whole statement with the, um, you know, that is a, a relatively fair initial response. I didn't do it, so. sir. <sighs> I didn't do it. So I shouldn't have to reimburse anyone. But unfortunately, um, you know, we live in a collective society. There's degrees of individualism. Like I said, some people need to take more responsibility. But there is also a degree of collectivism and, and it's, society is about marrying that up really and you know, it is a difficult balance, I understand that. But if you can help, help. <laughs> That's all I could say.
1: This is a bit of a curly question for you, Cam, but do you think we will ever reach reconciliation?
2: I've done a, a lot of research on forgiveness and just for myself personally, but also in terms of understanding life. And it is a hard journey. It is hard, it is confronting, it is ugly sometimes. And sometimes the people that you are trying your best to be reconciled with don't want reconciliation. I don't think that's what we're dealing with here in Australia. I think sometimes there is a sentiment that is us versus them, and that doesn't help the idea of reconciliation. That seed of distrust is anti-reconciliation. And sometimes it's very warranted. Other times, I think the media blows it up and I'm the first to point my finger at the media and the terms that they use are so incendiary. But I really, I do have faith that there is a potential for reconciliation to occur. I can't give you a percentage, but I can definitely say that it is a potential future.
1: And I guess in order for us to reach reconciliation, we have to go back to the beginning, don't we, Cam? As you know, this podcast series came about following the truth-telling articles in the APA's In Motion magazine. And so, I want to talk more deeply about truth-telling. What is truth-telling? What does it mean to you and why does it matter?
2: I think truth-telling is a nice spin on the term telling the truth. Really is kind of the term that it's coined from And what it really means to me is that we start to tell all the stories. And I know that as I was growing up in our educational system, sometimes the stories are skewed. And, I mean, that's very historical. I mean, they say history is written by the victors. But in the case of peace, where we're not looking at fighting and there's no longer victors versus losers in more of the battle terms, We've got a position, a unique position, and I must say that it is unique because what I don't like is a lot of judgment on the past sometimes when we live with the rich blessing of retrospection where we can say, I wouldn't have done that or you know, if it was me and all of those things because we have the privilege of looking back and we have the histories in front of us. But what I would be upset about is if, We didn't look at all the sources that were available. That's something that, again, comes back to the arts, comes back to looking at the historians and trying to piece the past together in a honorable way, in a way that tells the truth about the past. And so I think for a long time, only one side of the past was told. And so now we're in a place where Aboriginal voices are more prominent in the media or You know, outspoken voices are becoming in-spoken, so to speak, uh, uh, traveling closer to mainstream thought. And as that truth is being told, I think it's very important that we don't cast it aside, but that we learn from it. And that's, to me, what truth-telling really means. And I'm going to steal it from Michael Reynolds, that idea of truth-listening. And I think that's a responsibility when you hear the truth of trauma from someone who has been stolen from their parents, when you hear it from someone whose whole family has been incarcerated, or someone whose grandparents and parents are no longer with them and they're only thirty, you know you, you've got to you've got to listen to those stories.
1: This is starting to sound more and more like a promo for previous episodes of this series, but yes, truth listening which was beautifully articulated by Michael Reynolds. So for those listening who haven't heard that episode, it's episode two of The Deadly Physios, where Cameron interviews Michael Reynolds. So wrap your ears around that episode.
2: So if I can, I wanted to say two more things, just to extrapolate a little bit more on that. Number one, when you have your arms out, it's a really vulnerable position. And uh, vulnerability is something that I value a lot being in the trenches with someone or getting down on a knee and listening to someone who's in the gutter. And I think when you've got your arms out wide, you're vulnerable, number one, and that can really hurt. And something I've learned is that it does hurt, and I've been hurt many times. But at the same time, what legacy are you here to create? Are you here to create a legacy of I built a mansion and I'm going to die and it's all going to... Be destructive, but I had a good life. That's not my purpose, and that's not what I'm trying to do here. And I hope for our listeners that potentially listening to this or having a little bit more of introspection where you can think about yourself that maybe that isn't the key to life holding on and building your portfolio and all of those type of things. And maybe it's time to take a little bit more of a vulnerable stance. The other thing I was going to say that you've just mentioned there is the but I didn't know. And uh, it reminds me of, of driving offences. It's like, oh, sir, but I didn't know. Uh, it doesn't matter if you didn't know that the speed limit had changed. It doesn't matter if you didn't know that that wasn't the law. You've still transgressed the law and you'll be held accountable. So it's it's your responsibility. The government holds you responsible for knowing the law. And I kind of want to hold our listeners responsible now know your history and learn it for yourself. That's something I would love them to take away in terms of personal responsibility in this conversation.
1: And personal responsibility gives me the opportunity to segue into something more personal for you, Cam. My next question to you is this, your favourite question. What makes you a deadly physio? Oh,
2: what a good question. <laughs> i love. loved asking this question (laughs) and I was dreading being asked this question as I explained it to uh, one of the people I was interviewing. It's kind of like that job interview question where it's, what makes you the best candidate for this job? And I hate that question. You know what? I think it's, I'm willing to put myself out there. I'm willing to be vulnerable with my patients, uh, with my colleagues. I'm willing to do things that would stretch me in my career and in my thinking. And I'm willing to make change, to identify areas in which change could be beneficial. And I'm willing to do that. And I think change can be quite a scary thing. For me, my perspective is don't change something unless you understand it. And it can take a long time to master or understand key concepts in physio or key health inequalities. And for me, I think I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to stretch myself. And I've got a purpose. I know why I'm doing physio. And I know why I'm in health. And that makes it deadly. And that makes it something that I'm I'm humbled to be involved with. But I look back on my short career and think about the things that I've been able to do. And I just look forward to the future. That's something uh, that is very much a key aspect of my occupation. I'm looking forward to the future and what physio has and what I can offer it and I can do through it. So, look, that probably wouldn't have gotten me the job if it was a job interview. But, uh, yeah, take it or leave it. Look at a resume. I don't know. Listen to what I say, but you can make your own judgment.
1: I now want to turn to the part of the episode that I know you love the most, and it's based on the ABC's show You Can't Ask That. (laughs) Yay! And my question to you, Cam, is this. How can you claim to be Indigenous if you're living as a Westerner and not living like a traditional Aborigine in Arnhem Land?
2: Ah, what a good question. I love this segment so much uh, because it's a time of learning, I think, and all of those opportunities I value highly. A couple of things. First of all, Arnhem Land is not the only place that Aboriginal people live, but I, I understand a certain stereotype that might exist there. What people might be interested to know is that even though the highest proportionate number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders live in the Northern Territory as a result of their whole population in the Northern Territory, the actual highest population is actually here in Western Sydney, is in metropolitan areas. And so this traditional idea that aboriginals only live on the red dirt and carry spears and things like that is quite absurd really when you look at the distribution of aboriginals and Torres Strait Islanders around Australia so that's number one number two my question for listeners would be who is indigenous what does it mean to be indigenous do you have to live a certain way is it your expectation you're projecting onto me as to what I should do with my life or how I should live or how I should celebrate my culture? Do you not want me to work? I don't know. The implications behind that question are always interesting. And I think sometimes you have to turn it to extremes to get people to realize the absurdity of what they're really asking. And uh, I think those two questions you know, really do put it back on the person who who would ask. A question like this to say, what do you think, what do you want me to look like if I'm Indigenous? And for too long, I can tell you Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have tried to look like what other people project them to look like and and have been uh, held within that stereotypical box and have struggled with identity because potentially they don't fit in that box. So something I often say is that negative and positive stereotypes whether or not it's the, you know, you're the Adam Goods, the Kathy Freeman, the, oh, you're an athlete, or, oh, you're a drunkard, you know, you abuse your spouse, you, you're you homeless, you're this. Both stereotypes are harmful because if you don't fit either of them, who are you? Are you Aboriginal if you're not either of those? Yes is the answer. And so I'd encourage our listeners to look up, number one, what the government's definition of being Aboriginal is, but also to listen to uh, what people who identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, what their self determination is of their identity and their celebration of culture.
1: And now to your series of quick fire questions that I know you love. <laughs> the first question is What is your favourite Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander word? What does it mean and why is it your favourite?
2: So, this is what I uh, alluded to earlier on in the conversation about kind of the beginning of my journey. And it was because my elder brother, he was beginning university and he was um, a part of the Koori Center there at the University of Sydney. And he was doing a language elective. And the language that he chose was Gamilaroi, our mob's native language. And because he was doing teaching, if my memory serves me well, he had to then teach someone something. Anything, and so he taught us some language. And the word that I want to say is the gan. The gan means brother in Gamilaroi, and uh, my brother means a lot to me. It's also a word that, as I said, symbolises the beginning of my identifying or my my journey. Yeah, so it's a special word because it whenever I hear language spoken it invokes such emotion in me but then also this one the way it was told to me or the way i learnt, the person who taught me the context just makes it mean a lot i love the word brother you know it means means a lot
1: the magical power of words and that leads me to the next magical power of music i know you're a huge fan of music cam so the next fire question to you is what is your favourite Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander band or artist of choice? What is the favourite song by them and why?
2: This was such a tough question because I was trying to think of something meaningful. A friend recently asked if I had a playlist and I have a, a playlist of Aboriginal singer-songwriters and, and bands on Spotify. Maybe I should share it with everyone. <laughs> no, but my favourite song is Japana from Yothi Yindi. And it's just a very beautiful song. I love the melody, the ditty behind it, and then also the talk about country and Sunset Dreaming is the uh, alternative title. So I encourage people to listen to it. It's a, it's a beautiful song.
1: What a wonderful choice, Cam. I'm sure there are loads of Yothu Yindi fans out there, but I'm so excited because I know there'll be other people who've never heard of them, and this is an opportunity for them to hear some magical music and help in reconciling and closing the gap. And speaking of reconciling, my question to you, Cam, is what is one word that sums up what reconciliation means to you?
2: Well, if I'm to take my usual seat, I would be able to pinpoint it straight away because you've pinpointed it and it's something that I've said multiple times during this podcast and it's unity.
1: Unity. And if there's anyone that unifies us, it's you, Cam. Sadly, we are coming to the end of this episode, but before we sign off, I alluded earlier to your future, Cam, and... How bright it is, and how much you're looking forward to it. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing what your future holds. I'm sure you're aware now that you now are famous. You have a legion of fans following you because of the incredible work that you do as the usual host of the Deadly Physios. I also know that you have been a host of a webinar in 2020. So, my question to you is this, Cam What is your future? I know you've got an arts background and I will confess I was heartbroken having come from the arts community myself that we lost you to the health sciences, but clearly you still have a passion for the arts. So my question is, do you plan to have your own podcast series moving forward? Do you see yourself creating your own TV show, Conversations with Cam? (laughs) What does your future hold, Cam? Oh
2: dear. Oh dear. You might not know it, but I dread every moment of all of these podcasts and I listen with a little notepad and uh and write down frantically all of these notes to try and link it and make it coherent and I do think that I have a little bit of a talent for hearing things and seeing themes and whatnot. But uh this is definitely not my <laughs> my source of income. So For me personally, um, I'm looking down the road of potentially doing a PhD. Mm -hmm. I'm yet to nut out how that would work logistically, but my real passion, and it's not a PhD for myself, it's actually someone encouraged me to turn a project that I had in mind into a PhD, and that project is commencing a student-led service in Western Sydney for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as a musculoskeletal clinic a way to bridge the gap, to create this service where it's not in a hospital environment, it's in a safe environment in community. It's a workplace where people can get cultural, more culturally safe. I won't say it's going to provide you know cultural competence because I always see that as a spectrum, but will value add to the student experience, but also um, provide another point of service for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. So that's my vision. Maybe not for this year by myself because it will take a lot of stakeholders to get involved, to come off the ground. But um, something that I'm working on and would like to put out there because I know that I'll need help and potentially some of our listeners might know someone or something that can add uh, to this idea. Just don't steal it for me because if I write it up as a PhD, it's got to be unique. So... (laughs) Help me out, but don't steal the idea after I've created one, maybe.
1: I cannot wait to see what the next chapter holds for you, Cam. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this episode, but I just wanted to say thank you, Cam, for taking the time to speak with us, to share your truth, to open your heart and to unify us so we can move forward. Thank you for being a guest on The Deadly Physios.
2: Thank you so much, Claire, and I'm glad that our listeners get to hear the mastermind behind all the editing and all of the work that goes on behind the scenes, and I look forward to being back in the seat asking the hard questions, but thank you so much for this interview. It's been lots of fun.
0: Thanks for listening to The Deadly Physios, an Australian Physiotherapy Association production. To learn more about this episode's guest and The Deadly Physio series, head to our website at australian.physio forward slash The Deadly Physios. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review.